Any questions from the past couple weeks? How many of you read for this week? Really, good job. I didn't know what the what we were supposed to read till this morning. Um, I asked Pastor Nelson on the way on the way up from the Eucharist. I said, "What did you do?" And he said, "I think we did." Gert, yeah. Oh, I thought he said Elizabeth of Hungary. Oh boy. Okay, Gertrude. All right. So we did Gertrude. Um, that's actually okay. I do want to. I want to pause. I want to pause maybe for one week. Um, Partly, I think this book has been very good, but as Abby said to me, um, we were at a wedding last week, and you know she had the book with her, and she said, the book is very interesting, but I don't quite see how it applies to us. Um, and I think that's a, that's a generally fair comment. Uh, you know, the book is nice. It gives you some over, historical overview on these women, but other than two or three pages from the Pope, you know, what does it mean? So I think that's a live question. Um, so I think it might be helpful if we sort of look at, not only biblically speaking, but just in general, what it means to be a woman, frankly, what it means to be a man, and I'll talk about that in just a couple minutes, but um, there's also a sense in which we need to broaden our horizons just a bit. So I was struck this morning as I was, I was reading uh, books and culture at home before I came to work, and there's a whole book review Um, done on a book that was written by an evangelical that basically says, as evangelicals and Protestants, we need to find our way back into the great tradition. And the great tradition, of course, is the tradition of the church up until about 1517. And so um, this guy says, you know, being part of the great tradition doesn't mean um, that you're not a Protestant. What it means is your roots are deeper and older than maybe 500 years. So I think part part of our struggle is, our way of reading this text is through the lens of what? When we read this book by the Pope, it's through the lens of what? Lutheranism. And, and Lutheranism, Lutheranism is very young, actually, if you think about it. Um, Lutheranism in the world is you know, roughly five, not even 500 years old, and Lutheranism in America is you know, 160 years old. So part of it is we've got a very short history through which to read these texts. In fact, some of these women, as you know, go back to well before the time of the Reformation. And so, you know, we, we sort of noticed two or three weeks ago when I was here that, um, you know, even the language is difficult for us to understand because we define our terms differently, right? We have different definitions for things. And so it might be good just to slow down for a week and say, where are we? Um, why does the broader church view things this way, and why do we view things that way, and how can we all get back on the same page? So in an effort, um, well, here's the thing. This is my last Friday with you. I won't be here. Well, next Friday I've got to pack the truck. Abby works me like a rented mule at home. So uh, actually to say, it's, I couldn't believe how much it was to have somebody drive the truck to Atlanta for you. I thought if I pack it all, this has got to be like 800 bucks, 900 bucks. I mean, I'll rent the truck, somebody like $4,000 to have somebody drive it to Atlanta. I said, I'll drive my own truck to Atlanta. So um, I've, got, I've got Mr. Strutzel and Mr. Yonker uh, coming over next Friday to help me pack. You may not know that, but that's good. Uh, they're both going to be there. Um, Matt, of course, said, I've got to see if I can get the day off of work, to which I said, it's you and your dad. Who do you have to ask, you know? Um, and then I heard through the grapevine that Jonathan Mueller is a tremendous packer which actually makes complete sense to me. That, that actually makes complete sense. So I've heard he helped the other vicar, and he was always the guy who would say, you know, you know Holm, you know Joe Holm. Joe Holm's like, 
we can't get any more on the truck. And Mueller would say, give me five minutes. He'd go on the truck, move stuff around. So I said to Mueller, um, if Bruzek is here, you'll need to take a vacation day. If Bruzek isn't here, I'll give you the day off. Um, and there's a chance Bruzek may not be here because he's in Fort Wayne for part of the week. So I'm hoping he's not here Friday and I can just say to Mueller, throw on some jeans and come with me. Uh, he worked for Beacons Packing and Moving once. He tells me that every time he helps move something. Oh, he is, although I, I know what will happen if I ask him to help me. He'll say, yeah, I'll help you, but you need to take a vacation day and give me one of yours for helping you. So I'm going to be out like 300 bucks at the end of the day. It's not worth it. I'll, I'll pay Mueller to do that. Um, so anyway, so this is my last Friday. So in some sense, I, you know, I can say anything I want at this point. Um, I'm kidding. I've threatened to do that on multiple occasions, and as it usually works out with me, I've not done it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I know you can. No, I, I think, here's the thing. I've, I've, yeah, I know it is, and I'm grateful for that. I've, I've proposed this to Emma, though, like this is going to be some grand road trip, and that's the only way I've gotten her to agree to go down with us. So it was, we're going to have a road trip, and Disney World is only six hours away. That's the only way she's going with us. She's convinced she can only, she said to me, I'm not moving to another country. I said, it's not another country, it's another state. And she said, no, it's another country. I can live in Chicago or Wheaton, that's it. (laughs) This is right before she said to me this morning, she sits down on the couch next to me, we've got this old laptop that doesn't work. She gets out the laptop and starts typing on it. I mean, it doesn't even turn on. She said, oh, Daddy, email from Pastor Bruzek. I said, there's an email from Pastor Bruzek. Yep. He said, you got to come into work early today because you guys have the Eucharist. You better write him back. I said, okay. And she said, I just got one from Charlie Strutzel. I said, really? Because now I'm kind of playing along. She said, yep. He said his birthday party uh, is coming up, and his birthday is today, and love you. I want to marry you, Charlie. I said, really? I said, uh, Charlie's the guy you're going to marry. Well, you know, it could be Drake or August. And I said, August is so young. And she looks at me, straight face. Yeah. She looks at me, straight face, and says, Daddy, he's going to grow up. (laughs) I said, okay. So have options, baby doll. That's what I always say. So any of those choices would be awesome. Then she said, well, I do have Jose who goes to my school. And there's, I'm like, okay. So, um, anyways, all that's to say, I won't probably be here next, I don't think I'll be here next Friday. I mean, I'll be in town, but I don't think I'll be here. Um, so, at this point, I can say anything I want. And uh, I've got another article for you. Um, I think maybe one or two of you have seen this, but um, this, will, this will at least start the discussion about how we should find our spot in the broader church. Okay? So, this is, I had given you an article a couple weeks back. Uh, that I had written for First Things about, what was it about? Oh, the Pope's visit to uh, Germany, which surprisingly, um, I, was, I was actually stunned in, you know, it, it goes, on this, goes on this website and people can write in and respond. I was actually surprised at how few critical responses there were. And there was only one where the guy basically said, you're not a Lutheran and you're Antichrist just like the Pope. But the funny thing is, he writes on every website like that. <laughs> So it was sort of predictable, but I got emails from people in uh, Australia, Canada, a guy from Spain wrote and said, hey, thanks so much for writing that article. 
So uh, that doesn't mean it was a great article. It just means somebody engaged the issue. Yeah. So um, this is, I'll give you one. This, is, uh, this will come out, I think, on Monday, maybe on Tuesday. This is uh, in response to my own Reformation celebrations. Now, I wasn't here, so when you read this, don't say he's talking about us. I'm not talking about you. I was uh, not going to miss that. I was um, in Michigan for a wedding, for my sister's wedding, at Historic Trinity Lutheran Church in Detroit. Anybody ever been there? Oh, my gosh. Go Google this thing up. Historic Trinity. Matt Harrison, the president of the Synod, actually preached there the day after this wedding. And he said in a press conference there, um, it's the most, we get one of those to Abby, it's the most beautiful church in all the Missouri Synod. And then, of course, he said, you think I say this to every congregation, and I don't. It is, it looks like a cathedral out of Great Britain, just mini. It's got mosaics on the ceiling. It's got a huge stone altar. So a beautiful place. But the day after, you know, there was the Reformation service, and I was struck. It's always interesting what you can see in a Reformation service when you're not the guy presiding. You can sort of watch stuff. So I was struck, and then I came home, and I said, I ought to write those thoughts down. And I wrote them down and sent them to this guy, and he said, thanks so much. We're going to run this on Monday or Tuesday. So here are the thoughts. But what I want to propose to you is, again, Lutheranism needs to see itself not as a sect, but as part of the great tradition. Well, part of something bigger. So here's this article, and this will hopefully launch us into uh, talk then about women in the church and where they fit in. So how should we celebrate Reformation Sunday? Sixteen years ago, Stanley Hauerwas, he's a professor at Duke, he's a Protestant, began his Reformation sermon this way. I must begin by telling you that I do not like to preach on Reformation Sunday. Actually, I have, put it, I have to put it more strongly than that. I do not like Reformation Sunday, period. Now, this guy's a Protestant, okay? I do not understand why it is part of the church year. Reformation Sunday does not name a happy event for the church Catholic. On the contrary, it names a failure. Of course, the church rightly names failure, or at least horror, as part of the church year. We do, after all, go through crucifixion as part of our Holy Week. Certainly, if the Reformation is to be narrated rightly, it is to be narrated as part of those dark days. Now, I think that says it's too strongly, but um, point taken. While Hauerwas could be a bit more nuanced, the question implied herein is a good one. Should the Reformation be celebrated or mourned? In my tradition, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, the commemoration of the Reformation is a day, frankly, unlike any other day in the church year. For those local congregations who do not have a daily office or a daily Eucharist, Reformation is usually transferred to the nearest Sunday. It's always interesting to me that the Reformation happens on October 31st, but we could celebrate it on November 4th, (laughs) which is a little odd. You wouldn't do that with Christmas, but we always transfer Reformation because it's a big day. In many congregations, the entire celebration is orchestrated with special music, guest preachers, and oftentimes even a special meal. Of course, every Lutheran sings with with gusto Luther's famous hymn of the Reformation, Ein Festeberg ist unsere Gott, a mighty fortress is our God. Old-timers, and again, I'm not talking about you, I was at a different church. Old-timers, who on most Sundays rebel against the use of Latin in the liturgy, reminisce on this day about how great it used to be to sing in German. Isn't that great? Most surprising to me, however, is that the liturgical color for the day is red. According to the Altar Guild Manual of the LCMS, red is the color of zeal and martyrdom, and of course, it is integrally connected with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
Therefore, it is the designated color for Pentecost, the feast of the martyrs, as those who shed their blood for Christ and his church, and also for ordinations, the latter being the place where the Holy Spirit is given again to a specific man for a specific task. But knowing all of that, this question emerges. Why, then, does Reformation get the color red? Though Luther was at times threatened, he did not die a martyr's death. Luther wasn't martyred. He died of, you know, kidney failure. Neither did Father Johannes Bugenhagen, who was given charge of Luther's wife and children following his death. That was Luther's pastor. And neither did the famous lay theologian of the Lutheran Reformation, Philip Melanchthon. The only other cause for the use of red would be the presumption that the Reformation was a new Pentecost for the church. This is equally as troubling, however, because it likewise presumes that for hundreds of years, the fullness of the church ceased to exist. And officially, you know, Lutherans don't believe that. Therefore, the color red suggests that it was not until 1517 that the church came back into existence in a manner not unlike the first Pentecost recorded in Acts. To that end, the color red is somewhat ironic, since the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, like historic Lutheranism, sees itself as a reforming reforming movement within the one Catholic Church. We are, in other words, evangelical Catholics. This is the way the Book of Concord talks about us. Our goal is not destruction and recreation, but reform of an already existing church. Therefore, while I would never want to endure the pain that would undoubtedly come with changing a much-loved liturgical commemoration and its corresponding liturgical color, I really wonder why we, the pastors and congregations of the Lutheran Church, don red and not purple for Reformation. Purple is, of course, the color of sorrow and repentance. And throughout our post-Reformation history, it has usually been the Roman Church who has expressed the reality of liturgical purple, most notably during the Day of Pardon on March 12th of the Jubilee year 2000. You know what happened on that day? A whole day where the Pope presided over a prayer service where he asked for forgiveness for all their previous sins, including the sin of the Reformation. Sins against the Jews, sins against um, various nations, sins for um, you know, the Crusades, and also the sin of breaking up the one true church of the Reformation. They all wore purple, by the way. We, on the other hand, do not seem to have mourned the Reformation let alone apologized for the sins committed therein, especially the sin of helping to break up the visible expression of the one holy church, the Una Sancta, which resulted in plures denominationis, many denominations. One of the strangest things about our current cultural milieu, however, is the way in which denominational tags, and think about this, denominational tags are a direct result of October 31st. They mean so little anymore. Instead, postmoderns are, as N.T. Wright has observed, given primarily to beauty, community, spirituality, and justice. What they want and what they need is a church that is ancient, mysterious, authentic, merciful, compassionate, beautiful, and most importantly, a church that is one. And that latter adjective, I would propose, is not helped by wearing red for Reformation. Therefore, it seems fitting that we Lutherans make our own mea culpa, our own my fault, It seems fitting that we confess our sins associated with the Reformation and especially our continued unkindness toward our brothers and sisters of other theological traditions. 
it seems fitting that we once again make Jesus' prayer our own, not only in word, but also in deed. Ut unum sint, they may be one. And wearing purple for reformation may be a good first step. October 31st has recently come and gone, yet the planning for next year is likely already underway in many Lutheran congregations. Mueller's up there doing it right now. And maybe the thoughts provoked by this year's celebration will lead to a more pastoral approach next year. I know they will for me. So um, the point of that is not to bang on Lutherans. The point is to say um, we're all still one church, at least in theory, and one side of that one church has said we're very sorry. The other side um, doesn't mean we need to do away with red, although it is a bit odd. What it means is we need to recognize our place and say um, we're not celebrating this day, we're mourning this day. It is amazing to me how many sermons are preached on Reformation that basically say Catholics are bad, Catholics believe in good works, Catholics are going to hell, aren't we happy for Martin Luther, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone. Um, many, of those, many of those assertions are frankly just no longer true. And so um, the point is the rest of the evangelical Protestant world is finding its place in the great tradition. Lutherans are probably the last to make that happen. The joke is always Lutherans are, Abby, slightly, and slightly late and out of breath. That's Lutherans. That was a joke. Loosen up, okay? The least you could do is laugh on my last Friday. The joke is always Lutherans are slightly late and out of breath. I always make the joke, too, that, you know, Lutherans are still singing Shine, Jesus, Shine, and the guy who wrote it doesn't think it's a good song anymore. So this is, this is part of our struggle is we're just always slightly late. So the rest of the Protestant world, Baptists, Methodists, Evangelicals, Presbyterians, not you know, to a person but on a whole are beginning to say our tradition goes back further than 1517. Our tradition goes back further than you know, the Protestant movement in America. Our tradition goes back to the time of Jesus. And at least my proposal to you is part of the reason we don't understand the book very well, or maybe, don't, no, I shouldn't say don't understand it, you all understand it. Part of the reason it doesn't have meaning for us is we don't see ourselves as part of that great tradition, and therefore we don't have the same understanding of women as the Catholic Church does. Catholic means small c. Part of our struggle is we don't, I said this to the vicar this morning, and actually the other two guys concurred, take this the right way. We don't know what to do with women in the church. That's part of our struggle. And that's a very unfortunate thing because we have so many women who are ready and willing to do anything for Christ in the church, and we say, we don't know where to put you. Now, I would, part, okay, so this is, the broader, this is the broader point. The broader point is, why do we not know where to put women in the church? Why do we not know what to do with women? Why do we not know how to use women well? Why is that? If you had to take a guess, what would it be? Come on, you all are women. Yes, specifically Lutherans. Specifically Lutherans. Because obviously, other church bodies... What's that? So fear. Good. That's good. 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 So we're, we're fearful. Um, might get too close to the pastoral office. And I want to I go back to that, because I think that might be the key point, actually. Keep going. What else? Because Catholics don't have any fear of women. They, in fact, they got, they've got millions of them. Yeah, see, you laugh because you're an old-timer Catholic. They've got millions of women who are, who are functioning now. You know, what's that? Yeah, they do. 
But, but the point is, they've got an official office for them. So why are Lutherans different? Part of it is we're fearful. What else? Yeah. Okay, good. So roughly the... Rough, exactly. Baby blue. Yeah, right. Um, there's a new book put out. I just saw it today. It's going to come out in the fall. In fact, I might buy it for all of you as a Christmas present. It's going to come out in the spring, sorry. It's put out by a group of Catholic women called Style, Sex, and Substance. How to be a Catholic woman in the 21st century or something like that. And the point is, what they're trying to say is, we can be Catholic and be normal, right? Because you have these images of deaconesses in the church, many of which are not flattering. Um, In fact, I can remember when I was a student at the seminary, they had a push among the students, the women students, and probably the men too, to redesign the deaconess outfit. Because they said, a blue suit is not my idea of like looking normal. And there was big pushback from, from a, the sort of higher-ups in the deaconess program. No, this is our outfit. But, but again, the point, point taken, you look at that and say, how could that be a fun life, right? But why else? Why do we not know how to use women? I think there's a deeper problem. Yeah. Go ahead, Beth. No, I think you're, I, that was the deeper point. Good. I think you're, you, what she said was men don't quite understand their role. And I think that's part of it. I think men um, in the church, this is why, you know, this, this is why Promise Keepers was so big for many years, because it finally gave men a chance to understand their role a bit better. Now, I think Promise Keepers was a disaster for many reasons. But, but in some respects, it was very helpful. It gave men a chance to come together and say, this is what it means to be a man. Right? So with that then, and I think, I think all of you are kind of thinking the same thing, the reason we're fearful, this is probably our major fear. It'll encroach on the pastoral office. But what this reveals is we don't understand what it is to be a pastor. If we understood what it was to be a pastor, we wouldn't be fearful of women trying to encroach on it. We don't understand what it is to be a man. Again, if we understood that everybody has different gifts, different talents, and different responsibilities, we wouldn't be fearful. And we don't also understand what it is to be married. I think these three things have led to the place of women today in the Lutheran Church. And again, I would, I would at least propose to you, look at the church bodies, and again, I don't, you know, I don't need... There's always a sarcastic answer when somebody says the Catholic Church knows how to use women well because everybody's had a bad experience. I had Catholic nuns who, they did to me what they did to you, which was they used to beat me with a ruler in high school. So, yeah, are there some bad nuns? Yeah, there are. But the point is they at least understand the place of women in the church. I would propose to you they get that. You know why? They understand this. They understand this. And they understand this. What it is to be a pastor what it is to be a man, and what it is to be married. And I think probably the easiest one and, and least controversial is probably this one, married. And I would, and I would at least say to you, <clears throat> part of our struggle is we don't understand what it is to be man and woman in holy marriage. We just don't get it. Uh, how, does, how does the Lutheran church talk about marriage from what you know? Or how did Luther talk about marriage? Do you know any of this about Luther talking about marriage? Did Luther think marriage was the church's responsibility or society's responsibility? You got a 50-50 chance. (laughs) He thought marriage belonged to civil society, not to the church. But here's the thing. Once you take the church out of marriage, suddenly what happens? There's no substance. 
right? There's no substance, yes. Yep. Well, that's, say, that's different than saying you should be subservient to men. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Well, and I think the point you make is, is um, in some sense, it's very good. Uh, okay. Well, I, let me I'll, I'll ask you this question. This will help you understand the, the final point, which is deaconesses came into the church when? Do you know? Not you. I just mean in general. When did they come into the church? Way back in the 4th century, 300s. You need one? Sorry. Yeah. That's right. Right. Yeah, that's right. But but you remember, deaconesses came into the church way back when. Why? What was the easiest way to get people to join the church when everybody was being persecuted? The wife! Yeah. Who was it that would say, no, you can't come, or no, you can't go? It was the husband. It was a patriarchal society. And so what did they do? They made these women into deaconesses because if a priest showed up at your house in, say, well, before 310, so let's say a priest showed up at your house in 90 AD, it was St. Peter, and he knocks on the door, the man of the house is going to come to the door and say, get off my property, or you're dead. A woman shows up, and what happens? The man doesn't answer the door, the wife answers the door, and what does she say? Come on in, let's have a cup of tea. And so these women would go into the, into people's homes, pagans' homes, and uh, and they would begin with the wife and the children and convert them to the faith. And then, as you know, if you get the wife and the children, you've got the husband. you got the husband. Yeah. So, but part of this is, um, over the years, especially in Lutheranism, we've lost a bit of what it means to be married. And I do, I take a little offense when people say, um, you know, the church just wants women, wants women to be subservient. That's precisely the opposite of what the church wants. Um, and we'll look at that in just a second. But there are proper roles for men and women which are um, displayed in marriage, displayed in the church, and should be then displayed in all of us. So I give you Ephesians 5. You've all heard this text before. Some of you may have had it at your wedding. Um, it was great. I had, I had a premarital couple once where, I don't know if this was, it may have been the same couple with the marriage certificate issue. It was the couple who came in. Oh, yes, I, I know what it was. Um, as a rule of thumb, as a pastor, when you do a wedding, you have to send the marriage license in within 10 days. If you don't send it in within 10 days, what happens? You go to jail. So, um, and it says it right on there. This is, you know, you can be, per- you, no, I was going to say persecuted, punishable by jail or persecuted if you don't send it in within 10 days. So my rule is I always, I do not sign it till after the wedding, and I take it right to the mailbox and drop it in because I don't want to take any chances. Well, I had a wedding about two years ago where um, somebody who was involved in the wedding, uh, the wedding coordinator said, will you sign this? And I said, no, I haven't done the wedding yet. This is like 3 o'clock for a 4 o'clock wedding. Just sign it. It's going to be fine. I said, no, I'm not going to sign it. It was a long day. And so what do I do on a long day? I don't argue. I just give in, right? Yeah, I just give in. It's like being at home. So I didn't argue. I just said, fine, I'll sign it. So I sign my name. She gets it all signed by everybody else. She gives it to our secretary, and I said to the secretary, don't put this in the mail till after the wedding. Well, I see the mail truck driving away, and I went out. I said, can I just have that certificate? I just want to have it with me in case. She goes, Ugh, I, uh, I probably should have listened. I just put it in that mail truck. Mail truck is going to the post office. Now, this is, we got an hour till the wedding. Lo and behold, what happens? The bride comes in and says, I don't think I can do this. I said, hell yeah, you're going to do this. <laughs> 
I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can say submit. I said, I don't care what you say. You're going to do this because I'm going to prison if you don't do this. The point is that happened to be a bad day because two things, two bad things happened. One, nobody listened to me. And two, uh, she said, I can't say submit. But you get, you get folks like, it's always interesting when I do premarital counseling and I sit down with the couple and I always read this text. Pastor Bruzik does John 2 and I do this text. And as I read this text to him, you should, you should see the look on the guy's face when you say, wives, submit to your husband. The guys are like, this is exactly right. What they have no idea is the requirement for men is much greater than the requirement for women. And so the, the women always get a little edgy, and the men always get sort of excited. And then by the end, the women are walking out saying, this is going to be great. And the men are like, I think I'm going to reconsider. So, But again, this is part of our trouble. We don't understand what it is to be man and woman, what it is to be married, what it is to be married to the church. That's what a pastor is. That's why I wear two wedding bands. I'm married to Abby, and I'm married to the church. Okay? So we don't understand that. So a good place to start is Ephesians 5, and if we can understand this, we might be able to find a place for women in the church. We don't understand where men should be. How would we ever understand where women are supposed to be? Does that make sense? So Ephesians 5, just tell me what jumps out at you. Don't, jump, don't look ahead, because I'm going to give you all the answers at the bottom. Um, but just listen to this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That's a baptismal reference. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves himself loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So this is St. Paul. When you hear that, what jumps out at you? Yeah. Good. Yes, exactly. If he fails, if the husband fails, his wife fails. What else? Yeah, that, that would be, yes, that would be sort of the, the next logical step. Not only does she fail, but failing in marriage or failing in the Bible doesn't just mean oh, you know, you lost that one, it means actually something unholy happens to you. Right? Yeah, Donna. Yes, good. Good. So also, yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Good. And, that, and that, here's the thing, that's something you've heard a million times. I mean, the most important thing is Christ first. No matter what it is, marriage, family, job, church, whatever it may be, Christ first is the most important thing. What else jumps out at you from this text? That is interesting. And I wonder why that is. I wonder why that is. Why does it say, yeah, go ahead. Yep. That's very well said. That would be sort of a simplified, I don't mean simple, but simplified version of the five languages of love. You know what I mean? Good. Tell us what was said. 
Exactly. She shall desire her husband, right? Exactly. So part of it, say that again. Where's that at? Genesis what? This is Bible study. I guess we could open the Bible. By the way, I, I'm trying to give you Bible verses because for a long time we were just reading the book. So where's that at? Gen- it must be Genesis 3. Yeah, it looks like, now this is a footnote in an English translation, so you don't know how reliable that is, but it looks like um, the word for four could also be against. So your desire shall be against your husband. But, I mean, just be practical. Here's the thing. We're not in Eden anymore. So we want to go back, but life is life. So partly, I do think it's true. I think, and again, not to a person. There are certainly women who say, I don't need that, and men who say, I don't want respect. But I think, generally speaking, your, your analysis of, of marriages in men and women is very helpful. Um, I, th- I just think it's true that um, women want to be respected, but they're respected by being loved. And men, uh, men want to be respected. How are men respected? By picking up the clothes. That was a joke. <laughs> By being obeyed. I don't. It's it's very interesting though. I don't. Um, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think it's obeyed. I can't. I mean, there are certainly some men who are, and we'll talk about this, who are sort of domineering. And by that, I mean they just require obedience in sort of a, a law sense. But that's not what Saint Paul is talking about. In fact, it's very different when he says wives submit or wives obey. So I think part of it is how do you understand obedience? Um, you know, you can obey your, you can, well, it's not like obeying a police officer. That's not what marriage is supposed to be like. And if it is, it's going to fail. Yeah. Right. Well, in the in, yeah. And the interesting thing is in this text, it actually gives that responsibility to men. That's why St. Paul says, present your wife in splendor. So that, you know, any dirty laundry you may have, nobody should know that except for the husband. And, and, and again, I think you've hit on a good thing where this happens to women. Although I would also say, go to a men's retreat sometime. Not a men's retreat. Go to a steak fry. It happens to guys, too. I mean, you, what I want to say is, man, if your wife only knew, and I know you've had about six beers already, but if your wife only knew what you were saying, it wouldn't go well for you. It happens all the time to both men and to women. Um, but it's funny how we complain about different things. Women complain about what? He doesn't talk to me. Men complain about? What's that? She talks too much. Yeah. That's not always true. Um, yeah, sometimes guys talk more than women. God God bless you. I mean, okay, anything else from this text before we look at what it all? Yeah, go ahead. That's right. That's right. That's why even there are some Lutherans today who say, and I utterly rebel against this, but some Lutherans who say, getting married by a local judge is just like getting married in the church. Here's the thing. Yeah, legally, according to the state, it's exactly the same thing, but not in the eyes of the Lord. We say in the marriage rite, we are gathered here in the sight of God and his church. You don't say that at the local judge, right? I think Luther said it should happen a lot. I read it someplace. No, I'm just saying, I think he said that. I don't know. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes, exactly. Right. There, yeah, that's a great way of talking about it, which is not you're a bad person. It just means it's going to be painful. Yep. But let me, so 
Good. Now let's go back to Luther. And what's the context in which Luther is working? The Reformation. Okay? And, and for, in many respects, Lutherans at that time rebelled against anything Catholic. What was the Catholic understanding of marriage? It's a sacrament. So the, the natural consequence is you pick the other extreme. Catholics say it's only holy, it's only the churches. In fact, Catholics say if you're not married by the church, you're not married. And so Lutherans said, anybody can marry you. Just like with ordination, the Catholics said you have to have apostolic succession. And Lutherans said, nope, anybody can ordain you. I mean, the point is, yeah, technically are they right? Yeah, technically. But technicalities never work in real time. So I think that's part of the rebellion, which is um, they wanted to make sure people did not see marriage as a sacrament. Although the funny thing is, we'll look at it, St. Paul did. (laughs) He uses the word sacramentum. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And you probably think that more now than you did when you were first married. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. It's interesting how I feel a deeper connection to Abby, even after such a short time, even than I did when we first met. Because, because just being with somebody that long, this is the difference between a mystery and a secret. St. Paul says this is a mystery. The Greek word is mysterion. When, when, you, when you have a secret and you find out what the secret is, what happens? It's not a secret. When you have a mystery and you discover a mystery, what happens? It becomes more mysterious. Exactly. So marriage isn't a secret. Marriage is a mystery. Um, and we'll talk about that in a second. But actually the Latin word that Jerome uses is this sacramentum is profound, which is the church has always said this sacrament. That's the word for, yeah. So anything else? Yes. I am listening. I'm just going to get some more coffee. Yeah. Don't like themselves or their body. Yeah. I think, I think that's true. And I've often tried to think about that, especially in today's culture where everything is, you know, you compare yourself always to the latest magazine. It's supposed to be perfect. Yeah, how does that... Uh, well, here's the answer. I don't know why St. Paul can say that, um, but if you imagine a reality that St. Paul is trying to envision for us, marriages would be much better. If you didn't worry about your own self so much, how you look, what clothes you have. I mean, think about what ruins marriages. What ruins marriages is when people try to compare themselves to someone else instead of being only concerned about what their spouse thinks. I mean, that's what ruins marriages, right? I mean, not, that's not the only thing that ruins marriages, but it's oftentimes um, some of the most tragic divorces I've ever seen are, were either men or women who were on sort of this binge to get healthy. They got healthy. They started to look good. They changed their outfits. They began to look like people on magazines, and all of a sudden, what happens? They've got someone else in their life. Now, again, it doesn't mean it's always the consequence. Lots of people can get healthy and keep their spouse. (laughs) But it, it happens that way because you begin to judge your value by what? By what other people think, not what you think or your spouse thinks. And that's a very dangerous thing because, as you know also, when self esteem plummets in a marriage, nothing can make you happy. So I think that's what St. Paul is getting at. Although I'm sure even in the first century, people were you know, sizing themselves up next to somebody else. Maybe he's saying it like, it's almost like it's ironic, like you should believe this. No one ever hated his own flesh, kind of a joke. Because if you didn't, if you didn't hate your own flesh, you'd love your spouse. Exactly right. That's, that's very well said. That's well said.
Anything else jump out at you? Beth. Exactly. I, uh, Pastor Bruzek and I did a marriage retreat, and I never had anybody ask me this, but at the very end, somebody came up and said, um, our son has a very severe case of Asperger's, and they said he will never get married. I mean, looks normal, has a job, you know, everything, but just, he can't, yeah, he can't, he can't relate. I mean, he just has trouble. The great thing was, he said to his mom, he's about 30, he said to his mom, women are too much work. I'm not getting married. I'm like, God bless you. But she said to me, how come we don't ever do conferences for single people? We do marriage retreats. Why don't we do single retreats? And actually, that's something the church needs to do. What does it mean to, you know, to rejoice in being single? St. Paul says some people are given to marriage, some people aren't given to marriage. So obviously, it's an open question. Um, but you are right, or whoever said it was right, you can judge the health of a congregation by how you know, happy and content, not happy, how content their single people are. Yeah. Really? Wow. Interesting. Really? Wow. That's exactly right. Yes. What's that? Oh, yeah, right. That's one way to deal with it. Anything else from the text? When Abby first met me, our very first date, she called a mutual friend. And what did that friend say? And? Kind of a mama's boy. Which is true. I love my mom. I'm her only son. Well, now she's got a son-in-law as of last weekend, but she tells me she still loves me the most, so I think that's true. I do ask her on occasion. Um, I, don't, I don't think I've, well, I can, no, I, not I don't think, I know. I can remember during our premarital counseling, the guy said, if you have a fight, don't call your mom. To both of us. The worst thing that can happen to a marriage is where a wife or a husband, they get in a big blow up, and what do they do? I'm calling my mom. And you get on the phone, and you kvetch about how bad your spouse is, and what happens then? The whole family is against the husband or the wife. And they remember it. They remember it. Exactly right. So then Christmas comes around. Like in my family, when Abby's folks come over, Christmas comes around, and what do I get? Used socks one year. I got used socks one year. I'm not kidding you. I got used socks. I hope this goes on the radio. Linda, I love you, but don't give me used socks. Let's get back to the text. Anything else in here? Mary, you're going to have to edit some of this. Where are you? There you are. Okay, well, just look at it. A couple key words. These are things we don't often think about. Submit. (laughs) Submit is not the way the world today talks about marriage. The interesting thing is the Greek word for submit literally means be ordered. Be ordered. And this is very important because remember what happens in Genesis chapter 1. What's the very first thing the Lord says about creation? It was tohu vabohu. It was formless and void. It was chaos. And what does the Lord do? He brings order to the chaos. The world today is chaotic. The only way you can survive is to have an ordered marriage and an ordered church. This is why the liturgy is so important. If you have a praise band, that's great. But what do you notice about praise bands? It's usually chaos, right? Okay, now we're going to bring the next guy up, and he's going to play. And then the guy's like, where's my music? And, you know, it's a disaster. Good music, but it can be a disaster. The church is meant to order your life, and marriage is meant to order your life, because the rest of your life can be chaotic. And usually these things go hand in hand. People who get turned upside down in the church 
and end up walking away are usually people who first have gotten turned upside down in what? In their marriages. And you can see this. It was, it was interesting to me, even in, in our past troubles, you know, some of the most, um, some of the families we struggled with the most were families where the wives sort of said, here's what we're going to do. Partly, their lives, own lives got chaotic, and then the church got chaotic, and what happened? Everything fell apart. So the Lord wants to order your marriage, and he wants to order the church. This is one way he orders your marriage. It also is very interesting because this is, um, I know I've said this at Bible study, this is actually a military term as well. And the way, you know, you've seen this like in Civil War movies. The way people used to fight in the ancient world would be they'd put ten guys across and ten guys deep, and they'd march into battle, and as the first guys got killed, the next guys would step over them and keep going. Who do you think was first in line to go into battle? The oldest or the youngest men? The most experienced or the inexperienced? You'd think it'd be the inexperienced. You'd think, given today's culture and how we deal with war, you send the young guy out on the front of the battlefield and the, you know, the sergeant is way in the back. Not so in the ancient world. In the ancient world, the oldest, most experienced soldiers went into battle first. And what they said to people behind them was, submit, hupotasso, be protected, which is precisely what St. Paul says about marriage. This makes sense. Life is a war. Your marriage, you're entering a battlefield. And the husband is meant to protect his wife. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, there's, there's some study that said that like people who live together before marriage um, have a higher rate of divorce than people who don't. Much higher rate. Like, you know, it is everywhere. Yep, right. Well, and, that, and that, that's the thing, is, is the common response today is, doesn't matter, or, or, doesn't matter, or, I often say to young couples, you know, here's the thing, at some point, young couples, if they have no church to, go, to sort of fall back on, so they just show up and say, we want to get married in your new church, you can't say to them, you know, Jesus doesn't want you to live together, they're like, well, who's Jesus and why would he care, you know, I mean, it just doesn't matter to them, and that's a sad reality about culture today, but what I often say is, they're still rational. I mean, you can say, well, here's the study from the Pew Research Center that says you're 30% more likely to get a divorce. Sometimes that works. Sometimes though, people say, that's not going to be us. Oh, yeah, I know. It is, it is interesting. But I think the point you're making is a good one, which is living together before marriage forms bad habits. You start your marriage off in chaos. You start and you don't realize it. That's exactly right. So then when you get married, what happens if you've lived together for two years and then you get married? Nothing's going to change in your marriage. You're going to stay, you're going to be married just like you were when you were single, which means your whole marriage is going to be chaos. That doesn't mean it can't work. So I'm not saying no, no people who live together are never going to you know, flourish. They can, but it takes a lot of work. Uh, then they should also understand that Jesus is there to protect the church and Jesus says, don't do this. It's not best for you. No, um, but again, those first, those years that they were together, even though they had the best of intentions, they weren't blessed. They just weren't, because the Lord doesn't say to live that way. Oh, yeah. Yes, exactly right. But that's not what Kirby was saying. I was only answering Kirby's question. Yeah, they can conf- yeah, yeah, you can confess anything. But, um, but remember, confession is not just confession and, okay, you know, everything's okay now. It does involve some restitution for those years that you lived together. And that restitution can take on any number of forms, like um, you make it a point to help people out who are doing that so they stop. Maybe that's your restitution. Make sure your kids don't do it. 
Um, but we have sort of this, we have a very strange sense about, about confession and absolution. This is a whole other topic. But it's not just like saying, oh, I'm really, really sorry. And the Lord says, oh, don't worry about it. Get them next time, girl. You know? Yeah, he says, get them next time. But you also need to sort of make up for all that stuff you've done. Um, not in order to be forgiven, but in order to move forward in life. Yes. It, it does, although it would probably go in the other direction. Because in marriages, um, men are to give and women are to receive. Just like in the church, Luther says they're givers and receivers. So that's the interesting thing. If submit means... Yeah, I know. That's what I mean. That's why I don't know how that, I don't know how that definition would carry over to this context. But certainly it does have that connotation today. But I just don't know. Partly I'm sick, so I can't think clearly. You know what that's like. Yeah. <laughs> Flip your page over. We've got a couple minutes left, and I do want to give you two more things. Um, love, this is interesting. The word here when St. Paul says love your wives, the word is not eros, like erotic. It's not just sort of physical love. It's also not philios. It's not like Philadelphia, like, hey, we're good pals. It's agape. And agape is the word that Jesus uses for, John uses for love in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he did what? Gave his only son. So the love that a husband should have for his wife is equal to, the, to a love that Christ has for the world, which involves death. Splendor, the word there is uh, like doxology. A wife should be beautiful. She should be praiseworthy. And this happens by, you know, Christ presents the church in splendor. Husbands present their wives in splendor. Women need to be ready to receive the splendor their husbands give, and frankly, husbands need to give it. Uh, the most important thing, mystery, and this is true. This mystery is profound. This sacramentum is profound. Uh, you know, I know Lutherans rebel against this, but the word is in the text. I mean, there's no way you can get around it. You can't just say it's not there. Uh, there are other places where you can say that's not a sacrament because it's not in the text. Here it is in the text. So, you know, is marriage sacramental like Catholics think it is? Maybe not. Is marriage more than a civil union? Heck yeah, it's a lot more than a civil union. It cha- why? It changes you. This is why Jesus' first miracle was at Cana. What did he do at Cana? He changed water to wine. And everything then begins, continues, and ends with Jesus. And so the point of all that is, if we understand marriage, um, I would propose a bit more sacramentally, if we understand that the role of women is to be protected and then in return to respect and to love their husbands, we might have a better place for women in the church. Partly, here's the trouble with the deaconess program. This will be one of my last comments ever at St. John. One of the problems is, we don't, I mean, it's sort of like we said, we don't know what to do with women, so let's make them deaconesses. That's not the reason you have a deaconess program. It's like when guys say, I'm going to go to the seminary because I don't know what else to do with my life. You shouldn't go to the seminary. We shouldn't start a program for women just because we don't know what to do with women. We should think through the text, read what Pope Benedict says, and then say, where can women best be used? And I will, uh, I'll will i give you this last thing. Just pass these around. People behind you, and I'll go this way. This shows you how prominent the place of women is in the Catholic Church and how we could learn something. It's interesting. People say of the Catholics exactly what they say of the Lutherans, which is it's a male-dominated church. You know, we don't ordain women. We don't have women elders usually, although I'm open to that. Um, You know, we just don't have women in the same way um, we use men in the church. 
What's interesting, though, is think back to the last two centuries of Catholicism. Last century, the 20th century, who was probably the most prominent Catholic person? Mother Teresa. By far. Even more than, than Blessed John Paul II. The century before, you know who the most famous Catholic person was? St. Therese of Lisieux. Very easily. By far the most popular person. So there's something to be said for the place of women in the church, and I think Catholics get it in that sense. People show more devotion today to Mother Teresa than they do to John Paul II. And you see, even here, this is the, this is the floor plan for the Cathedral of Chartres in Paris, which, of course, is dedicated to Mary. Um, but even in this floor plan, everything was intended to reflect the female figure. So here, just look at that. This is the halo over Mary's head. You can sort of pretend her. Let me see if I've got a pen here. So there's her head with a little halo. Why? Because women are to be honored and glorified. Here are her arms. Here's the rest of her body. Now, um, why am I drawing a blank? What's the thing right here in the, the prayer thing? What's it called? The labyrinth. Where's the labyrinth at in this church? Anybody know? Thank you. Did you watch the Catholic show? I have too. Very well said. Uh, great blue window, by the way. Awesome. You want to know where the labyrinth is at? Right there. What is right there? Her womb. Her womb. This was meant to reflect the image of a woman. Head, crowned. Why? She's supposed to be beautified, glorified, praiseworthy. Here are her arms. Here's her body. And right there is her womb. Why? Women are known, I mean, what's the, most, what's the most remarkable, miraculous thing a woman has ever done? Gave birth to Jesus. And you see that carried on today when women have kids today. So here's the thing. Uh, treasure yourselves. Um, we need to find a place for you. I shouldn't say we. The other two guys upstairs need to find a place for you. And uh, we need to, you know. Yes, the corporate we would be correct. That's right. The corporate we. Um, but we need to do more of that. So hopefully, hopefully this book carries on fairly well for you. And, um, you know, here's the thing. We, there's so much for women to do. We need, we need to use you guys well. And we haven't done a good job of that, so we're sorry. Us and just in the history of the church. So we need more of that. Any questions? Okay. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.